Let's pray and we'll ask God for his help. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray now that as we look at Matthew chapter 20 that you help us not just to understand what it says, but help us to understand how we should feel about serving King Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, how do you feel about serving Jesus? Is it a joy for you to serve Jesus? Jesus is your loving saviour and your greatest privilege is to serve him. Maybe you feel a bit like Brad. Let me tell you about Brad. Brad had been a student for three years when it all clicked. The minister was preaching on God's love and particularly God's love in dying for those who were so flawed. Something happened that night in his heart and he knew that all he wanted to do was serve Jesus. Is that how it is for you? You're so thrilled with Jesus, you can't help but want to serve him. Or maybe for you, you've become a bit more like Sophie. Sophie had been running the children's holiday club at church. It had been exhausting. And the clear-up had finished her off. Just as she collapsed onto the sofa, the phone rang. It was a guy from church. Could she get the bread for communion the next morning? It would only be a 10-minute walk. She said, yes, of course, but inside she was seething. Furious with, well, with Jesus. She'd been serving him all week. She'd been the only one who stayed behind to clear up. Everyone else was relaxing at home. She had to go and get the bread. Couldn't he give her a break? Is that you? You can feel yourself growing bitter about serving. You feel you work hard week after week for God. Meanwhile, other people get such an easy ride. Bunch of bludgers. When you see people at church who don't seem to do anything, you partly envy them and partly resent them. Or maybe for you, you're just plain worn out. You remember a time when serving Jesus was exciting and, and something you wanted to do. But now it's something, something that you feel like you have to do. The, the, the busyness has sucked out the joy. Maybe you're a bit like Martin. Martin began to relax as he walked home from church. His work was finished. He'd opened up, sorted out the chairs, done the children's talk and cleared away afterwards. He felt free. He'd done his duty and now the rest of the day was his. He could relax and enjoy himself. What a wonderful feeling. Is that how it is for you? Is serving Jesus an added burden to your already overburdened life? Or perhaps for you, serving is your glory. Uh, you see yourself as, and, and you love that other people see you as, that dependable volunteer, that admired Bible study leader, that faithful kids church teacher. You feel great about giving stuff up for Jesus and you're looking forward to your reward, which you know will be substantial. How do you feel about serving Jesus? Over the last few weeks, Jesus has been focusing on the concept of discipleship hasn't he, in Matthew's Gospel. As we've been walking towards Jerusalem, he's been teaching about discipleship, and the big, the big idea has been this. Christians need to be like little babies. 
We need to realise that when it comes to God's kingdom, we are helpless like children. We cannot get ourselves in. We cannot justify ourselves. We cannot do any good thing to earn eternal life. We are like that servant from a couple of weeks ago with the centillion dollar debt cancelled. We can't pay it back. To get into God's kingdom, we need to depend on Jesus. It's impossible for us. It's only possible for God. And so we need to receive God's kingdom as the free gift of a generous father to a helpless child. Did you get that? I think that summarises the last couple of chapters of Matthew's Gospel. We need to receive God's kingdom as the free gift of a generous father to a helpless child. And so as we saw last week, Jesus welcomed those little children, but that rich ruler for all his godliness, for all his blessing, he walked away sad. There was no good thing he could do to get eternal life. He wouldn't leave everything and follow Jesus. But then you remember Peter last week. Peter pipes up at this point with the rich young ruler having walked away and he asks a question, a question about all the sacrifice that he's made for Jesus, a question about all the hard work that he's done for Jesus. It was there in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 27. Chapter 19, verse 27. Peter answered Jesus, We've left everything. We've left everything to follow you. Cha-ching. What then will there be for us? Now, as we saw last week, Jesus assures Peter, God will be no man's debtor. Whatever you give up for God's kingdom will be richly rewarded. Jesus even promises there in verse 28. He says, when I sit on my throne, you too will sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But then Jesus finishes with a little saying. It's there in verse 30. Chapter 19 and verse 30, he says, But, Peter, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Interesting little kind of proverb there, don't you think? Paradoxical, isn't it? First, last, last, first. Uh, It obviously applies to the rich young man. He seemed to be first, great Jewish boy, but he ended up last. But this saying, it also applies to the disciples. Disciples like Peter who are looking for reward and position in God's kingdom. There's a sense in which they could think that they're first, but end up last. And so now Jesus picks up on this idea of the first being last. He explains it further by telling another parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a vineyard owner. He hires men early in the day for an agreed wage, but then right through the day he keeps on hiring more men. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 1. For, notice the for, it relates to what he's just said. The last will be first, the first will be last. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? 
because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Okay, you get the picture? They've all worked different hours. Some started at six in the morning, some not till five in the afternoon. Some have worked more, some have worked less. The only ones who have an agreement for their wage are the very first ones who started at six in the morning. They agreed to one denarius. But now look what happens when it's time to pay wages. Everyone gets the same. Everyone gets the same. doesn't matter when they started, they get the same. Verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour, that's five in the afternoon, came and each received a denarius, full day's pay. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. In one sense, it's not fair, is it? Some people worked longer hours, but they got the same pay. That's what the first workers think. They had been very happy to get their denarius, very happy to be hired, but suddenly now their denarius seems like a very bad deal and they grumble about how unfair it is. Verse 11, when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Jesus' story here, it reminds me a bit of this video. You got it there, Patrick? Thanks, brother. So a final experiment that I want to mention to you is our fairness study. Uh, and so this, this became a very famous study, and there's now many more, because after we did this about 10 years ago, uh, it became very well known. And we did that originally with capuchin monkeys, and I'm going to show you the first experiment that we did. It has now been done with dogs, and with birds, and with chimpanzees. Uh, but with Sarah Brosnan, we started out with capuchin monkeys. So what we did is we put two capuchin monkeys side by side. Again, these animals, they live in a group. They know each other. We take them out of the group, put them in a test chamber. And there's a very simple task that they need to do. And if you give both of them cucumber for the task, the two monkeys side by side, they're perfectly willing to do this 25 times in a row. So cucumber, even though it's really only water in my opinion, but cucumber <laughs> is perfectly fine for them. Now, if you give the partner grapes, the food preferences of my capuchin monkeys correspond exactly with the prices in the supermarket. And so if you give them grapes, it's a far better food, uh, then you create inequity between them. So that's the experiment we did. Recently, we videotaped it with new monkeys who had never done the task, thinking that maybe they would have a stronger reaction, and that turned out to be right. The one on the left is the monkey who gets cucumber. The one on the right is the one who gets grapes. The one who gets cucumber, note that the first piece of cucumber is perfectly fine. The first piece she eats. Uh, then she sees the other one getting grape, and you will see what happens. So she gives a rock to us. That's the task. And we give her a piece of cucumber, and she eats it. The other one needs to give a rock to us. And that's what she does. And she gets a grape. And she eats it. The other one sees that. She gives a rock to us now, gets again cucumber. She tests the rock now, 
against the wall. She needs to give it to us. And she gets cucumber again. <laughs> so this is basically the Wall Street protest that you see here. There's nothing wrong with the cucumber. And the first monkey was happy to work for a cucumber. It was pleased to work with a cucumber. The problem is the other monkey gets a grape. And the first monkey is happy until he sees what the other one gets. Then he's jealous, and suddenly that cucumber is not acceptable. The first workers were thrilled to accept a denarius, pleased to have a day's work and get their fair day's pay until the workers who did less got a denarius as well. Suddenly it didn't seem fair. Suddenly their denarius seemed like a cucumber instead of a grape. But the owner won't accept their grumbling. He says, I haven't been unfair. He says, you got what you bargained for. I haven't been unfair to you. What I've done, I've been generous to the other workers and that's none of your business. My money, I'm entitled to be generous. Verse 13. But he answered them. Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And so Jesus makes his point. Here's what he means when he says the last will be first and the first last. Here's his warning to Peter with Peter's question about what reward he's going to get for, for leaving everything to follow Jesus. The fact that you have worked longer, the fact that you have worked harder in God's kingdom, it doesn't qualify you for some greater reward than anyone else. That's not how it works. God's kingdom is not a matter of equal pay for equal work. No, no, no. If you're in God's kingdom at all... It is a matter of his sheer grace and generosity to you. If you are in God's kingdom at all, it is because God has cancelled your unpayable debt. If you are in God's kingdom at all, it is because your generous father has accepted a helpless child like you. And so if you're in God's kingdom, you have no place feeling jealous about what kind of a deal you've got or what kind of a deal anybody else has got. It's not about what you deserve. It's not about what they deserve. It's all about God's generosity. Verse 16, Jesus says, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. At this point, Jesus gives his disciples a reality check. He reminds them where they're going and why they're going there. They're going to Jerusalem for him to die. Verse 17. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he'll be raised to life. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to suffer and die so that God's kingdom can be established, so that his disciples' debt can be paid, so that they can be forgiven and given a place in God's kingdom through the sheer generosity of God. But unfortunately, the disciples still don't get it. 
They're still, they're still thinking about the thrones he promised them back in the last chapter. It was like, thrones, blah, 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 blah. That's all they've heard. And, and now, like the first workers in the parables, they're, they're jostling with each other about it, trying to get the best position. Now, in the next story, James and John pull out the big guns. They get their Jewish mum onto the job. Now, I've got one of, the, I've got one of these Jewish mums. Um, believe me, this is pulling out the big guns. Okay, uh, pulling out the Jewish mum to get the best seats in the kingdom. Verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favour of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. The disciples have got no idea, do they? I mean, Jesus has been telling them over and over again where they're going, why they're going there, but they still don't realise that there's a cup of suffering in front of them. Jesus is going to be nailed to his throne. Is that really what they want? Verse 22. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? James and John reckon they're up for it. And Jesus... I think he's very kind in his answer. He, he, he knows that they will eventually get it. They will eventually be willing to suffer for him. Um, James will be killed for his testimony to the risen Jesus. You see it in Acts chapter 12. Uh, John will be beaten and exiled and imprisoned on the island of Patmos. You see that in Acts 4 and 5 and uh, Revelation chapter 1. That They will eventually drink the cup. Jesus acknowledges that. But this request they're making now, it, it shows that they don't get it at all. And he won't give them what they've, what they, he won't promise them what they've asked for. The end of verse 22. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my Father. Now, when the other disciples hear about this, they are angry. Indignant is the word there, lovely word, I reckon. I don't think it's for good motives, though, do you? I don't think they're saying, oh, James and John, you haven't understood the nature of God's kingdom. You haven't understood that we are like little helpless children and we should not be presuming upon the grace of our Lord. <laughs> I don't think that's what's going on. I reckon they're grumpy because James and John got the, James and John got the jump on them. Uh, got in first, don't you think? Verse 24. When the turn heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. The disciples have got no idea. They think they're the first workers hired in God's kingdom. They think they're the ones who will get the biggest wage, the highest position, the best thrones. It's, it's all grapes from here, they think. But Jesus says, no. He says, God's kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. God's kingdom is not about power and authority and status. And, and, and God's kingdom is where the last is first and the first is last. And now in one of the most important verses in Matthew's gospel, Jesus gives his own example. He is the king in God's kingdom, but how will he rule? By going to Jerusalem and dying. Verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant 
And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, that's Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Did you notice just as a side point, Jesus' understanding of why he's dying there is incredibly significant. He's giving his life as a ransom. Uh, ransom, I think, um, ransom makes me think of kidnap. Okay, we've been, we've been, it's like we've been kidnapped from our sin, uh, taken away from God, from home, kidnapped by our sin, but Jesus dies to pay the ransom, the ransom to buy us out of our terrible situation. Jesus pays the price for our sin so we can be set free brought home, given a place in God's kingdom. The point, though, that Jesus is making here is this. That leaves no room to jostle about who's the greatest. If we're in it all, it's because Jesus paid our ransom. Jesus paid our debt. If we're in it all, we ought to be utterly humble, eternally grateful, ready to to, to follow the example of our servant king, ready to serve with, with humility, gratitude and with joy in fact we ought to be a bit like these last two blokes that we meet they uh, call on King Jesus not to give them thrones for their hard work no no they call on King Jesus for mercy and when they receive it they gratefully joyfully follow verse 29 As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and followed him. And that's what ends this whole section on discipleship. Because here is model discipleship. They've received mercy and now they're more than happy to follow. No jostling, no arguing about what they deserve. No, no, just... Happy beggars. All right. Can you see what's here in this passage? Let me just summarise it and bring it all together. So we started in the chapter with Jesus talking to his disciples, reflecting on the reward that they were expecting for giving up everything and following him. And he says God's kingdom is not about fair work for fair wages. No, no, no. It's a matter of God's generosity. If you're in God's kingdom, it's because of his grace. That means you should be grateful and humble, serve with joy, and it means you should be happy for anyone else who receives God's generosity, not resentful. Jesus then reminds his disciples, we're on our way to Jerusalem where I will die for you. But they're still thinking about rewards. James and John try to get the jump on the others by getting their mum to ask for the best thrones. But Jesus tells them again, it's not like that. God's kingdom is not like this world. It's not about power and glory. It's about service. Like He himself has come to serve and give his life as a ransom. And then finally we get this picture of these two beggars. They rely on King Jesus for mercy, they receive it, and they gratefully follow. See how it all flows and fits together? It's actually quite beautiful, isn't it, the way it all works?
Well, friend, friend, how do you feel about serving Jesus? Uh, those examples that I got at the beginning, uh, Brad and Sophie and so on, they're not real people in our church. They're examples I got from a book. Uh, it's a book called Serving Without Sinking. Seems like an excellent book, and I'll have some copies at the church camp if anyone uh, wants to get some. But let me quote some more from the book. Christians serve for many, many kinds of reasons, and almost all of them are flawed. I know my motives are mixed at best, wrong at worst. Christian service should not leave us feeling cross or shattered, or guilty, or proud, or bitter, or lazy. But all too often I chat to Christians who feel one or all of those things. I see them in myself too. And then the author says this. What we need to understand about serving Jesus is this. It isn't primarily about our service. It's mainly about Jesus Christ and about his service. He says that he didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and he meant it. He was taken, beaten, tried, mocked, nailed, hung, cursed, judged, killed. He served, he loved and so Jesus does not want you to measure your life by your service of him. He doesn't want your service to get in the way of your love for him. He did not come to be served by you. He came to serve you. If we grasp this, then we will be set free to enjoy his love. And then, oddly, we will also be set free to serve him longer, harder, braver, truer than we ever could otherwise. Wise words, aren't they? Well, let me conclude with this, friends. Unless we get this straight, we're never going to serve with right motives. Our service will always be either a matter of pride or a matter of um, burden or bitterness or resentment. We've got to get this clear. Jesus doesn't need our service. He will graciously allow us the privilege of serving him. But don't do it for the glory. Don't do it for the reward. Don't do it with bitterness or resentment. Even if you end up with a cucumber instead of a grape. No, no. Know that Jesus has loved you. Know that he has served you. Know the privilege it is to be in his kingdom. And then, friend, be a happy beggar. Be a happy beggar. Serve with humility and with joy. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you because you've been incredibly merciful to us. We thank you that we are like helpless children who cannot get ourselves into heaven. We thank you that Jesus has paid our unpayable debt and we're sorry for when we're uh, proud or, or, or lazy or bitter. Or... Help us to know instead that Jesus has served us and to serve with humility and joy. Please give us strength in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.